Now, when I searched online for why people hate HR, I got pages and pages of articles from HBR, Forbes. When I searched for why people love HR, almost all the articles on that first page were along the lines of why I love working in HR or why you should love HR. There seemed to be no love from employees. So what's behind this divergence in expectations? And how can HR or the people function adapt at this time when the workforce and the workplace are undergoing so many changes? Our guest, Matthias Huber, has spent many years developing expertise in the people and organizational issues. He was People Function Director in McKinsey, Germany, and he was also a consultant at McKinsey before assuming that role. He's recently moved to be VP People, Products and Lifecycle at Wiesmann Climate Solution. So he's been around the block when it comes to people functions. So welcome, Matthias. Hi, Conrad. Thanks for having me. So Matthias, does HR or the people function have an image problem? So first of all, let me say I can totally relate to your observations, right? So when I was at some point in my career, the project leader, one of my sponsors said to me, Matthias, you're such a great product project leader. Why on earth are you bothering with those people topics? And uh, I'm still very glad that I decided not to listen too much to that advice and to stick with the topic. And why is that the case? If you look at topics that are most present on CEOs' minds, and there's a recent McKinsey article on that, for example, of course, one of the topics is a talent topic. So that's not surprising. However, if you look at the five other priorities, almost all of them have a people aspect, right? So uh, for example, if you talk about resilience, you need to have top talent to be resilient, you need to have people that don't get, you know, either easily cornered by a more tricky situation, people that are able to convey the energy of opportunities and all those sorts of things. So what you see is that the people aspects are very crucially baked into whether you're successful as a business or not. And now um, you can, of course, say, well, but apparently that doesn't, hasn't landed in you know, uh, HR's reputation. And I think it's not about the topics that we deal with, that they're not important, right? It's, I think, that we still can do so much work with the function. And in some areas, we already do that. And in some areas, it's still a bit more tricky to do that. Yeah, I, Peter uh, put a comment to say HR as a term is old, and that's why probably people hate the name HR. So you've been people function director and working at people. Is this terminology just uh, a, 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 the same thing you repackage it? Or is that, does that reflect a different approach to leading and managing an organization's people? Yeah. I would say it's really the latter, right? So someone in someone that's really, really good in a people function needs to understand the core of the business a lot, right? And only then is able to translate uh, in a data-driven way, in a productized way, why my function is also called people products, into programs and services and products that are actually helping the business leaders to be even more successful. 
So I totally agree. HR really reflects that old world in a sense, and there is a lot out there that's already has that has already moved beyond. Hmm. You you talked about that quantitative side of things, right? Uh, where you uh, and and how leaders, uh, organization leaders, have to grapple a lot with those people issues. So, how does a people function director uh, work with senior management, senior leadership, the board, in terms of presenting how an organization is performing in the people side? Yeah. So. The whole topic, of course, of people analytics is a very, very important one. Only if you leverage the, the insights that you have from a quantitative perspective and then add the gut feel and you know the expertise of many of my colleagues that simply feel what's going on in, your, in an organization, then you have the holistic story to tell leaders and also to measure how you can actually be impactful on aspects. So you're saying think, you've got to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and, and I think that ties nicely into that product idea, and that's to, to your point of how I work with leaders. So why, why do we think about things that we do in a productized way? It means that we're not a headquarter, basically, that tells people you must do that in that way, right? This is not the idea. It's about building people programs that say leadership programs or compensation structures or even... Uh, future of work, flexible work um, concepts, and then we offer them to leaders, for example, the MD of a sales entity, work with the respective P&O lead to adapt and bring that product to the specific environment of that entity. And then it's actually effective in helping the leader bring the entity forward. Mm. So when you say product, you're actually talking about uh, a particular sort of product that's related to a people function, is it? Like it's a people training. product, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So Deepak has a comment that says, he says, people hate HR because most HRs that I've come across lack empathy and operate from a place of authority and dominance. In some cases, they're arrogant too. Do you, is, is that, does that go back to that, uh, what you were mentioning about having that kind of empathy when, uh, and balancing out with the numbers? Yeah, so Deepak, first of all, I'm, I'm really, really sorry that you had to have those experiences, right? So that, that must have been harsh. Um, and I think in my environment, and maybe I was just lucky, uh, of course, I've now and there met people that were like that, like in many other functions as well. However, the majority of the people that I work with, they're very, very passionate about what they do, right? They're very passionate to help, to support people grow and to really bring the business forward. So whilst I appreciate that, you know, like uh, that your experience might have been different, it luckily did, doesn't mirror mine. And, and you know, you talk about um, a lot about the quantitative side uh, of things. We've we've gone like ten minutes, and I th we we've already we'll have to mention the the word of the year, which is AI. And I know Matthias, you're very uh, you've got you've got a certain view about the how AI is going to help or change the people function. What do you think that uh, can you describe how you think that's going to change? Yeah, uh, definitely. So um, and and I think there are, there are at least like two areas. 
uh, in which that's uh, that's going to be the case or is already the case in, in, in my context, for example. So if you look at generative AI, um, uh, it can actually help a lot with daily work uh, for of people professionals, right, of my colleagues. So for example, if you're trying to draft a job description uh, together with a hiring manager and you're trying to consult on that, usually you would have to put quite a bit of time into writing it down literally. Now with something like OpenAI, you can be much faster in learning how to give clear instructions to the engine and then get a, an 80% draft out of it very, very, very quickly. And then you can put your brain power and your experience into iterating that uh, by yourself and together with the respective leader. So AI in such a way can, you know, can accelerate parts of your task where you didn't add that much value a lot. You have to, of course, be cautious. You have to need to know with every technology, right, how to use it and what the downsides are. So not to put personal information in there, right, which would cause GDPR problems. Uh, and also where can you rely to which extent on the technology. So, but that's the first, uh, if you look at generative AI, that's where I think it will simply make quite a few of the, you know, less value-adding aspects of tasks much faster, right? The other aspect is how we can use things like machine learning to be better at understanding, for example, skills. So what skills does our organization have at the moment? What skills does the market think we should have in a specific job? What skills do we think we need in the future? And then how are we going to get those skills? Are we going to hire for a certain skill? Are we going to pay for a certain skill? Um, or for example, are we going to build uh, learning journeys, green upskilling journeys around it? Yeah, exactly. You just put up a, a nice slide on that. So what we do here, um, if I may explain, we actually work with, uh, with the technology that reads job ads around the globe every single day. And then out of those job ads, attracts, extracts the skills that are needed, you know, and combines that with our, uh, with our specific skills that we believe that are there, and also with the updated skills once people have actually moved through learning journeys to build those skills. So that if you also then build how you sort different jobs of your organization, the job architecture along the skills, that you can actually create a cycle that you move forward the skills that actually are crucial to fulfill your strategy. Hmm. I mean, Matthias, when we spoke before this, uh, I was really fascinated by how this, this whole architecture and approach that Wiesmann has towards skills. So is this the case that, you know, through these web crawlers, the machine learning, you can actually benchmark where your, the organization is? as a whole in terms of the skill level versus its competitors? Yeah, from an org perspective, uh, through the web crawlers, we would actually understand if the required skill sets, if you know the world out there thinks that the skill set for a certain job changes. And then we can actually relate that to our context and bake it into what we do uh, in the people, people function and with our business leaders. Exactly. Mm. And I, I think one of the... A... Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to say, this is a really fascinating area that you uh, and Wiesmann have been doing. Uh, and it may be useful actually to uh, illust talk a bit about, it. well, what does Wiesmann do? Ah, and yeah. what are the sort of, the, the kind of skills that, the, the, how you approach those skills. So 
Maybe if you talk a bit about uh, Wiesmann as a company. Yeah, so uh, Wiesmann is a, um, um, a, a German, originally German, but global uh, climate solutions company. Uh, we m mainly work on the decarbonization of the energy sector. So we produce uh, home energy management systems, heat pumps, uh, PV, battery storage, um, mainly in the residential and light commercial and commercial area. And we stem originally, we are 106 years old, we stem originally from you know, making gas boilers and oil heatings. Yeah? And we've transitioned into the decarbonization space and also much more into a solution space. And how does that map into this, uh, this chart in terms of the kind of value chain that Wiesmann has and the kind of functional areas and then later on skills? Yeah, so basically, um, in order to be able to handle skills, we needed to sort, if you will, right, certain, certain positions or jobs. We needed to bring a structure to that so that we know when we want to build a skill, which positions and people on those positions should we actually target. And we do that sorting in a skill, skill structure or skill-oriented way. And what you see here is the job architecture that resulted actually out of that. It follows broadly our value chain. It's 13 job families, uh, three in the developing aspect, right? So developing systems, developing products, then we produce them, then we sell them, and we enable doing all of that. Um, but we do sort that sorting of jobs, not from an org structure perspective. So you're in the marketing department, you're all in job family number seven. We do it from a skill perspective. What skills are useful and required in your job in order to do that job well? And then we bring that position into the respective job family. Hmm. And here, is this the case that you are breaking it down like uh, into a particular job area, like the purpose, purpose and then of, of customer services and the various skill areas that are pertinent? Is this what's going on here? Yeah, so actually for, for all of the job families, they are then described by a purpose and uh, uh, skill areas, right? And actually all the skills that are required for a specific job in that job family, 80% um, of those skills can be attributed to one of those skill areas. And I think, so with all of that, right? So um, with that skill-based work, it reflects much more today's world of, you know, ever-changing, unforeseeable um, uh, conditions that we operate in. Um, because if you work with an organization from a skidding perspective, you're not bound to you know, wait for an org structure to realize, oh, our job has actually changed quite a bit in the last three years, right? You can see on an organizational level, aha, those are the skills that are required for us in the next two years to fulfill our, our strategy where do we have them? Where do we have gaps? And what do we do with those gaps? We, we have a question from Marnie who asks about learning journeys. How do you think companies can best motivate employees to invest in their personal learning and make a use of all the materials, training provided on top of their already busy day jobs? Yeah, very good question, Marnie. Um, I think there, there are a couple of aspects. So if you look at it from an individual perspective, it's of course 
very important to make it a real experience. So I think only a fraction of what you learn in learning journeys actually comes from uh, the actual content, sorry. Uh, I think a lot comes actually from the fact which people do you, uh, you know, uh, go on that, uh, on that journey with. So thinking smartly about which people do you, you know, bring into one cohort? How do they interact? What impulses and platforms do we serve them? Uh, do we provide to them so that they can actually learn there from each other and with each other? That's the key, right? And that is then so much more engaging that also the likelihood becomes much higher that people actually are engaged and that they invest the time. Beyond that, from an organizational level, if you look at it from a skill perspective, we would always look at a whole cluster of jobs or positions. And we would say, all of you actually have to go, right? So it's not a question, it's an organizational decision to invest that a certain job needs to build those skills. And some people might be better at some skills, might, some people might be better at those skills, but overall, people can learn from each other and overall, it would boost the, the skill level. So within Wiesmann, do you um, have this sort of training plan or training targets per people for each employee? Or in, how, did like a line, how, how do you get line managers to release their people to go for this uh, go for training or on the job upskilling yeah that's again the beauty of the of the organizational skill approach if you will right because we say everyone on that type of job needs those skills in the future we have worked with with the business leaders on what those core skills are and we've leveraged the machine learning algorithm to help us with that um and then it's it's actually it's it's it's, it's a business decision right that the leaders jointly make if you will so it's not that much around, you know, like in individual conversations, oh, this person should go, this person shouldn't go. Okay. Hamish asks, um, how will HR leaders help their organization grapple with what it means to lead in an organization that's going to be transformed by AI? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. So I think, um, and... I have, of course, some thoughts of it, but I'm far, not, by far not yet there, right? So to, to, to know it all, basically. Um, I think one, it's several aspects that are really important. One aspect is to adopt it as a leader yourself, right? If only if you have an understanding of what the technology can do for you and for the people that you lead. And if you also have a calibrated view on where the, the upsides are and also where the risks are and how do we actually deal with those risks, then you can be a good leader uh, and help your employees give, give orientation to the people that you need. Um, other aspects are, of course, that you uh, need to build um, a structure so that people can also bake that into the processes uh, to, to, to use AI, right? And that they know um, how to use it more most effectively, basically. So they also have the capability to do that. And then over time, with being a role model, with having the right processes and structures in place, and with building the capabilities for people to use AI, then I think you will also see a positive transformation in that space of your organization. Does your skills map approach struggle with something like AI, where the, uh, the skills or even the training is 
it's not quite developed yet because it's such a new field and things are changing so so rapidly well to an extent it's already baked into the skills as of now right because the development is there um and uh, even though generative ai has you know created quite a bit of buzz very recently the technology like deep learning machine learning has been out there for a while right so gradually it has been it has sunk into specific jobs already so it's already baked into what we do on top of that i think the beauty of the approach that we take is that through the use of the web crawlers we actually keep up to date with that so you, we would see it relatively quickly if it has a if it has a specific incremental impact on certain jobs and then we can act mm. roxana ask um you know Wiesmann is obviously a world leader in, in, in its field it's very well established you said it was 100 over years old but what about startups uh, does it, do they also need to come up with effective efficient people function processes oh definitely um so and i think there's we could talk of, of course about like the, the process side of it a lot and i think there there are very very good acm cloud solutions out there also for smaller scale organizations Uh, that can help you do that or serve as a basis to do it. I think what's even more important if you look at the people aspect of startups is that you invest time and make up your mind early on the culture that you want to build and how you operationalize that culture. So what does it mean in terms of leadership behavior? How do you bake that into uh, performance discussions that you have? How do you bake that into reward discussions that you have? How do you bake that into your selection processes when you hire etc.? So I think that is at least as, as important in my mind for startups as effective and efficient processes. Mm. I mean, you talk about the leadership and the culture. So Saswati asks, from a future of work perspective, what are the top people function priorities for leaders? What would you say are some top behavioral skills that organizations need to yeah. focus on? So I think let me maybe start with the aspect of flexible work and then make a bit of a segue to the broader uh, future of work uh, topics. So from a flexibility point of view, uh, I think as a leader, it's crucial that you initiate those discussions on where do we are fine with all being remote and where do we make a conscious investment into coming together in a physical place um, because we know that problem solving is better there because we know that it gives us a better sense of belonging, a better, better energy. And as a leader, you, in my mind, should be able to ignite those discussions, not only with your line organization, but also including the other teams that your people deal with the most. So that is for, for the flexibility bit, right? So as you might hear, I, I, I don't think, uh, uh, I personally, I don't believe in, you know, 100% uh, remote work for a uh, whole organization. Neither do I believe in the effectiveness of saying you have to be back, you know, Wednesdays and Thursdays in the office. Um, but anyway, so that is for me a leadership capability in that flexibility context. And then on top of that, if you look at, um, you know, more work models that are more closer aligned with like agile and scrum methodology, etc., I think there that also does something with you as a leader, right? So, and I think you need to understand what kind of leader you want to be in that context. Are you going to be a leader that leads to mainly through your expertise 
and ejects that in a certain way into that kind of working? Or do you want to be a leader that is actually, um, you know, more on the broader perspective of leadership uh, has, has tries to have an impact there even more, right? Uh, and then you need to find your specific space that fits your capabilities uh, in the in the future of work uh, context. So does it? It sounds like for you, you think that remote or hybrid is going to be a permanent feature of the future of work. Is that right? It's right. I think though that we are still learning how to balance it best. Because I think the yes, the pandemic had in that sense advantages because it accelerated the adaption of remote work uh, in, in, in much more jobs, um, many more jobs. But on the other side, you know, some people made life decisions during the pandemic because they thought they would never need to go back to the office. And then now that we have the chance to meet again, we realize how important it is for our sense of belonging, how important it is for certain tasks to come together with your team, with people from other teams, to solve some certain people, certain tasks or certain problems effectively. And now, you know, like people made life choices during the pandemic phase, because I thought I'd never have to go back. Now they realize what they're losing and their organizations also learn, realize that they need to balance it in a way. And then it's a bit about, you know, what do I do now with my life decisions of moving away a couple of hundred miles, for example. I mean, you mentioned how everybody around the world, whether it's employees, people function directors, uh, senior leaders are trying to figure this out. Uh, even though the pandemic is gone, everything's kind of gone back normal. But hi if hybrid and remote or remote working in some cases is going to stay, how do we stay visible to our managers, to our leaders uh, in this kind of hybrid working environment? Yeah. So as an individual uh, employee, I think it's really crucial to make use of all the offerings that are basically there, right? So if there is a certain event uh, that's not directly related to your job, physically in the office, go there, right? Meet people, make use of it. And if there is not that much offering yet, be entrepreneurial about it. Think what would be good for you, right? And if you feel, for example, too shy, for example, or if it's just that the style to talk people up and say, can we go for lunch? Why not invent something like bring your favorite childhood meal Friday or Wednesday and then have that as a vehicle to attract other people and to come together and then be uh, visible as well. Mm. You, going back to this idea of how to attract people, how do you spot talent? We have a question from Abhishek in India. And Abhishek uh, worked in executive search. And he's asking, you know, when you do external hires, how do you basically differentiate between candidates, uh, given that now there's a lot of more focus on privacy, there's more limited candidate information? How do you tease out competencies between external and internal hires? Yeah, so I think there again, our skill approach comes into play quite a bit, right? Because for us, uh, we, we, we translate the skills more and more into an assessment techniques. Um, and we can actually do the same with leadership practices. So if you have a good understanding as an organization of what good leadership looks like for you specifically, then it's also easier to translate that into uh, assessments. And I mean, they're very, very good. Uh, also, um, uh, big five personality questionnaire 
based assessments out there that help you not only look at the skills, as I said before, but then also look at that almost a cultural fit that you need to examine. And Saswati had a follow-up question to what you were mentioning before. So beyond remote work, flexible working schedules, automation, is there anything else that you think is coming in this future of work? Yeah, I, I think that whole uh, change in way of working is already underway, right? So we've seen even banks adopt, adopt agile or, or scrum-based uh, um, uh, ways of working. And that's what I meant in the second part of my answer, right? That uh, you as a leader, of course, need to find your space, your leadership space as well there, uh, position yourself, and maybe also add capabilities that are very, very useful in that environment. Hmm. And going back to the idea of you know skills, when you look at your organization, where are the skills gaps, and you're asking yourselves, do you upskill or do you acquire maybe? Yeah. Um, JR asks, what are advantages and disadvantages then of getting freelancers or independent contractors to fill mm -hmm. maybe either a skills gap or just we, you just need some warm bodies? <laughs> I think it highly depends on your situation. And I think if you, if you decide that it's useful for your business uh, and in your context and for a certain skill cluster, in my mind, you should always keep in mind what you want to build around as a culture, including freelancers and independent contractors, right? So even if you have a mix of permanent employees and freelancers, um, that doesn't uh, stop you, has to stop you from creating a culture and certain values of how you interact with each other. And that's what then also makes the interaction between freelancers and permanent employees more seamless and the business outcome uh, even better. When we started talking, we talked about whether HR people function had an image problem. And Deepak, I think, obviously thinks so because he says, he asked, um, do you feel that the chief HR officer or chief people officer right, is seen as not as important as other C-level roles? And whether that's, uh, it comes out in titles, it comes out in the salaries. Do you think that's uh, an ongoing issue for the people function? So it's interesting, Deepak, I think we maybe maybe we want to have a chat also <laughs> even separate from that, because uh, I, I appreciate your experience. My experience does not necessarily mirror, especially your your second sentence. I, I do think I, I know, though, where, where you're coming from. Um, and in the end, in the environments that we operate in, the people aspects that are, they are so central so that if you have a good people function leader, like with other functions as well, that really understands the business and is passionate about having a business impact through the people topics, then I also think that you don't necessarily have that problem. Right? It's just that we're, we're not there yet, uh, um, you know, across the board, and it will just take time and investment and also people moving around between functions, right? So Conrad, as you mentioned, uh, I on purpose, made at some point the choice to become a strategy consultant that was not consulting on people and work topics because I wanted to learn how value chains in different organizations, in different industries actually work. And that actually helps me a lot today to be more effective in what I do. Mm -hmm. 
I think Dipsasis, I don't know whether this was a question or a comment that came up earlier, but um, how are you going to empower HR when they can't generate revenues directly, when business is based on numbers? So maybe, Matthias, if I turn this around, which is, do you think that people function or HR can, can ever quantify the impact that they have on a business the way that, um, let's say, the product teams or customers some of the customer service functions can, can do, or sales. Yeah. yeah. So in some cases, you can and you should. So for example, if you want to scale a certain business, and in order to scale that, you need to bring in skills externally as hires and internally through up and reskilling, then you can set yourself targets for the hiring, and you can see how the revenue is dependent on the hires, right? So there is actually quite, quite measurable on, 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 on what the impact is, right? Um, but I think there are also very, very important other aspects of people function work that are foundational work, like in many other functions as well. You need to have a certain, you know, a certain foundation like the job architecture that we talked about, because otherwise you will not be effective in what you're trying to achieve through people topics in terms of business impact. Yeah. So I think the numbers driven aspect should be for the people function almost as important as for a sales function. And we must acknowledge that it will never be able to tell the full story. Yeah, I, I always think that uh, managers would sit up a lot more if HR could, tell, could say, actually, this is how much it costs to, when you hire the wrong person for the job. Right? Yeah. And, and in terms of money, but in terms of your, your, you know, your, your, your time, to manage the situation, the time that the rest of the employees, uh, the rest of the people in the team have to grapple with. If you tell that, I think a lot of managers will take the whole uh, hiring process a lot more seriously. Yeah, and it's and it's doable for uh, for many of the topics that we, as I said, not for all topics that we deal with, but for many topics, right? Same thing with growing internal talent. If you grow internal talent, uh, you can to a certain seniority level with a certain skill set, can actually compare what that costs you compared to hiring someone externally, cost per hire, uh, what it then needs until the person's fully up to speed, et cetera, et cetera, right? So even there, bringing the numbers to the table is in my, from my point of view, very doable for many of the people's topics. Yeah, yeah. And it leads on to this comment or question from Laviana, who's uh, watching in India. Laviana says, you know, currently A players in organizations are using remote work or hybrid work sometimes to find uh, additional sources of income, second job. How are organizations retaining talent other than providing the monetary uh, incentives or promotions? Yeah, in, in, uh, so I, I think there are at least two aspects for me, right? So one is um, the, uh, what I said before, that balance between remote work and face-to-face -face interactions, because if you do it well, that combination, then you also increase the sense of belonging a lot. And that really, you know, that, that brings people a lot more back into, or, or makes a tie much stronger, right? Mm. So uh, that's basically the, the, the one aspect. The other aspect is that, at least in my experience, purpose-driven work is 
much more important than it used to be, for example, 10 years ago. So many, many more of the candidates that I talk to, they actually look for making a real contribution uh, against climate change, for example. And even for myself, if I, if I, if I may say that, right? So um, when, I, when I was hiking last Sunday, we were doing a hike we've been doing a lot of times in the woods uh, nearby a small river. And it was really sad to see that the floor, which was almost usually a bit like humid, like the typical, you know, June, July kind of floor you would find in, in the German woods, was completely dried up and very dusty. And it really, it, it did something to me, right? And then it, I was actually happy that I can say with my daily work in the decarbonization space, I actually make a contribution to stop climate change. And I think that is something that becomes more and more important to people. And that again, then also serves as a tie to the respective organization. In, in this part about purpose-driven organizations, therefore helping to attract talent, uh, thinking back to your work as a consultant, you know, where the idea, the perception, the external perception is that consultants go in, come up with a strategy based on all these things about market positioning, your, the company's resources, blah, 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 blah. Do you think that actually thinking, you know, thinking of how to attract talent, what are the sort of things that could attract talent starts to play into the strategy of a company? And do you, do you see that dynamic beginning to emerge? I do, I do, I do, yeah. More and more companies, um, you know, they, they, they identify their purpose and they then try to, you know, bake it into what they do. And I think, in my mind, candidates can very quickly sense whether it's something authentic or whether it's something that's actually written on the roll uh, or, or on paper. Mm. In, in your experience looking at companies who are, uh, you know, when, who are trying to balance this purpose-driven side, how do, you, how do they measure their progress in that? Because, uh, again, thinking back to your time as a consultant, you could measure you know, your market positioning, your resources, your comp, you know, the, the kind of internal market, internal organizational competencies per se. But how, would, how do organizations start to measure the way, the way that they the extent to which they are fulfilling their purpose. Is this something that HR or the people function is, is measuring? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two different aspects that we need to separate a bit, right? What is the, like, if you look at your business, what's your progress towards, so in, in working towards um, that purpose? And the other aspect is how does that materialize into employee experience? Where does it, how, how is it perceived then by the individual, right? And if you look at the second block, you can actually measure that along the whole employee life cycle. You can ask candidates, why do you actually apply? Or why do you sign actually or not sign in the end uh, if you get an offer? You can uh, look at your, your employees and you can uh, look at specific aspects of the employee life cycle and where do they feel it the most or the least and then explore what it, why that is and what you can do about it, right? And even when people then decide to leave, you can also, you know, dig into that uh, quite a bit. Yeah, so I think throughout the whole employee life cycle, uh, it's actually quite doable to, to uh, understand and quantify that. And I think we have a final question from Roxana. 
So she asked, what would you say are the best ways of using the big five in people processes, especially in the context of regulatory compliance? Maybe if you could explain, first of all, to people like myself, what is the big five? Ah, so uh, the big five is the most prominent personality, personality psychology uh, concept, if you will. And many inventories are actually derived from, from the big five. Yeah? And uh, so it's basically, you know, there, there are many questionnaires, if you will, out there that you can answer as an individual. And then you get an analysis of your big five personality traits out of it. Um, and in my mind, um, so the big five, they have almost no correlation with uh, job performance in that sense. However, it can help you a lot have the right conversations. So with um, uh, a candidate, for example, if he or she agrees to do such a thing, so it always, as you write, Roxana, right, it always has to be compliant, absolutely critical and doable in my, in my experience. Um, so if a candidate is okay with that, it helps you ask the right questions, have the right discussions, right? And also later on, if you think about development, it helps you with those conversations and with the right structure for it. Well, thank you so much, Matthias. You've given us a, a lot to think about in terms of the future of work, but also more importantly, the, the important role of the people function in an organization. And hopefully, at least for the people who've been watching, they, you'll, you'll see more people saying that they love HR or love the people function and few who say why they hate it. <laughs> Thank you so much to our viewers as well uh, and for your questions. The, the balance sheet returns in two weeks' time um, on the 21st of July, same time, 12.45 UK time, where CJBS fa marketing faculty, Vincent Ma, will talk about how product launches ha uh, happen how do organizations approach launching a new product? And in particular, we're going to look at how Apple launched their new spatial computing headset. So if you can, please join us then. In the meantime, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you to everybody. And we'll see you in two weeks.